Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Those are verses 18 to 22 of Psalm 33, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, October the 2nd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the book of Hosea, and one of my favorite chapters in the entire book, actually, is because it displays the, the incredible love of God for those um, with whom he is in covenant, um, and, and how he, how, as much as he has excoriated them through the first 10 chapters <laughs> in the when you get to the 11th chapter everything changes you see the tenderness of god the tender fatherly love of god for his wayward people it's a beautiful chapter in uh the in the gospel we're in uh, luke 6 verses 27 to 38 and then in the acts of the apostles chapter 22 verses 17 to 29 it, it begins tenderly when israel was a child i loved him and out of egypt i called my son how wonderful and beautiful his description there is for his people. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. It, what what a wonderful set of imagery that is! It, can you you can just see this? I was it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. You know you can you can just see this tender image of a father and a child, um, teaching that child to walk, holding his hands. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of ki- cords of kindness and bands of love. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Um, they, they tried to make an alliance with Egypt, but that was a failed enterprise. It was not going to happen. Um, God already had a plan for the way this would go, and there was no reason to bother doing this. And they're going to do that because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage among their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. In other words, God's going to ignore their pleas for mercy and pleas for help because they're not turning to them with their whole heart. They're just living in fear. You know, it's the old um, apologize because you don't want to face the consequences kind of thing, not because you intend to make a wholehearted turn away from what got you into the trouble to start with. No, I'm going to make my apology in order that you would do what's necessary to help me avert the consequences of my own actions. And God says, you know, because that's not the way they're turning to me and why they're calling out to me, then I'm going to have to let them go, and I'm going to have to let them go through this. And sometimes as a parent, you have to do that, right? Sometimes as a parent, you have to let your child pay the price for what they've done. You can't always get in front of everything on their behalf. Sometimes it's the only way that they can learn the lesson to not do something again. I mean, I spoke with a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about their child had had been in a lot of trouble. They had done a lot of dumb things. And he said, John, I just, I, I'm not going to bail them out right now. I, I'm going to make them sit in this situation 
for the time being simply because I love them and I, and I want this to stop. They have to learn a lesson, and if I keep bailing them out and, and taking care of all this stuff, they're never going to learn what they need to learn. But then at the same time that God says, I'm going to give them over to the consequences of their sin, he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I have a covenant with you. I can't just walk away from you forever. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. It, it's the, the, the beauty of our relationship with God is is that that he never abandons us he never treats us the way we deserve and, and as christians we know that that's because of jesus because he came and died on the cross for our sins that that when we turn to him and when we ask him to forgive us then he is righteous and is willing to forgive our sins because of the covenant relationship we have with him and so in the old testament his people had a covenant relationship with him that was consecrated at Sinai, and, and then they were responsible for keeping it, but ultimately the one who was responsible for keeping it was the Lord. As we saw in the, in the striking of the covenant to start with, with Abraham, it was prior to any circumcision, so it only depended on the faithfulness of God. Abraham didn't have to pass through the pieces. Only God passed through the pieces. And so then it became such that um, that it that, that everything about that covenant depended on God's faithfulness. And it's a good thing that it did because in the universe, he alone is faithful. And so we can turn to him when we have been unfaithful to the covenant, when we have disobeyed his uh, commandments and transgressed against him, then we can turn to him because of his steadfast love. And the proof of it for us is not the passing between the pieces. No, it's Jesus on the cross praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so we know that he lives to make intercession for us now. That is the deep, deep love of the Father. And, and it's, it's so comforting and so tender all at the same time. And that it's easy because of that that we can forget that he is also righteous and that his righteousness and his holiness actually matter. And so we can make light work of sin rather than turning to him with our whole heart and intending to repent, to turn away. He's not interested in us making confession again and again and again for the same sins. What he wants is for us to have truly contrite hearts that see sin the same way he does, and then we'll work to avoid that in the future. It, it's, his love for us is so great, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished. That's exactly what he says of himself in Exodus 34. And so we need to be aware that, that God's love for us is great, but sometimes he has to say to us, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go through some stuff. And, and we do need to know that and to understand that. And so then Jesus now in the gospel lesson, he, remember he's been up on the mountain, he called the disciples to himself, and then it, we, we had the Beatitudes yesterday, the sort of an abbreviated version in Luke versus what um, you get in Matthew. But then he goes on to continue the teaching there. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And, and as I've said before, that love your enemies means don't have enemies. <laughs> don't, don't allow yourself to be dragged into that. 
Uh, keep yourself pure and unstained from that. Other people might hate you. They might mistreat you and all that. But, but you have an obligation to love your enemies, which is the same thing God does, because Paul says we were once enemies of the cross, and Christ died for us even while we were enemies of the cross. And, and he would know, because he was certainly an enemy of the cross of Christ. And, and so when we're told to love our enemies, we're, we're told to keep our hearts unstained from that kind of thinking. To, that, that we're not supposed to allow ourselves to, to, be, to have other, en- other people as enemies of ours. And just as I mentioned a second ago about the tenderness and the love of Christ, when he prays for us from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that's loving your enemies. And Stephen does the same. But, but love has to be more than, than just a, a feeling. No, he says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And Jesus did. The people that hated him, Jesus reached out to them and, and tried to bring them in, tried to bring them in through proofs of healing and things like that, but also through his teaching and through his claims. He always asked them to examine them without the emotion involved, without the preconceived notion of who he was not involved. He, he constantly came to, to them, to provide a witness to them that they might see the truth and believe the truth and come and be healed. He says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And in both those cases, this is, um, the thing to remember is, is this is violence. In the one hand, that, that somebody who comes against you violently, then you're to turn the other cheek. And then from one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. So if somebody wants your your cloak, then say, oh, okay, well, here, you, you're probably going to need the tunic also, the, the undergarment below that. And, and that's the way we're intended to respond to our enemies. Now, I, I want to quickly hasten to say that these people that we're speaking of here, that if, you, if somebody considers you their enemy, they've stepped out from being your brother in that instance. And so if they're, if they're your brother in Christ and they consider you their enemy, that's got to be confronted and dealt with because they are supposed to love their enemies as well. So th- there shouldn't be that kind of relationship within brothers within the church. And if somebody begins to act that way, then what you have to do as a church is you have to say, I'm sorry, you, you can't be part of the fellowship as long as you're considering other people in the fellowship your enemies and treating them that way. It's not okay as Christians, to treat one another that way. He says, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So it's just being poured out like a drink offering is exactly what, what is being uh, counseled here. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So let that be the guide, Jesus says, to the way that, that you treat other people is, in this situation, how would I want someone to treat me? And then do that, whether anybody treats you that way or not. But you, we all have a good sense of how we'd like to be treated. And Jesus says, you know, we, we all have that, that personal sense of worth and dignity that, that demands, <laughs> that it didn't demand in the sense that we, we always demand that, that. But we know when we've been mistreated. And the way we know when we've been mistreated is we know how we should be treated. And so he says, that's the way you should treat other people. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those for whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And so when we receive mercy, that, that should change us into the kind of people who, who give mercy. But what I fear is, is that, that we think we, we've outgrown mercy at some level because, well, we're in the kingdom. Jesus loves us, and therefore now I no longer really need mercy. Well, certainly not as much as, well, you know, Bob does, and, and certainly not as much as Sally. I mean, she's awful, right? So, oh, wait. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I'm still in need of mercy each and every day, probably, you know, three-quarters of the day. I need mercy. And, and he says that, that, that if you do the things that I said, love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. And what it means to be a son of the Most High in that instance is, is to be just like him. If you want to know who God is and you want to know what his character is and you want to be like him, which is, should be our goal because we're children of God, then, then these are the things you need to do. You need to be kind to the ungrateful and evil and merciful. And then goes on to say, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, we put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what, what he's telling us is, is that, that we are, it's not our job to be judge of the world. It, whatever standard we use for judging other people will be the standard that will be used for judging us. It, it's important that we forgive one another. That, that's the most important thing I believe that we can do because that's the thing that makes us most like God. Our willingness and our quickness to forgive one another for sin. And then we're told if we do these things, then our reward will be great and we'll be called and we will be indeed sons of the Most High, sons and daughters of the Most High. And that is who we are. And so if we call ourselves children of the living God, then Jesus says, if you call yourself that, then be like him. And here are the ways you can be like him. And it's a challenge, certainly. We're called not to have enemies. You know what the easiest thing in the world to do is to have enemies. I mean, we've gone through a lot of stuff over the last few months, and, and there's certainly been people that I considered my enemies and certainly been people that I don't want anything to do with ever again. But, but, but I have to release all that, forget all that, let it all go, pray for those people, and, and if they ever come and ask me for forgiveness, then I'm required to give it to them. I've forgiven them in my heart because, as we were talking to somebody last night who made the, the old comment about, you know, th that it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Well, I'm not drinking poison. I'm not going to do that. I have to let it go. Um, it, but I, that doesn't mean I call these people and say, hey, you're forgiven. They claim to be Christians, and therefore I can forgive you in my heart while also keeping you at arm's length because I'm not going to allow you to continue to hurt me in ways that, that you choose because that's not who you're supposed to be. So I'm not going to allow you to do that. Paul is continuing to give his testimony, and here he says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the 
temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, the timing on this would have been after he left Damascus and then came back to Jerusalem. And, and so he says he's in the temple praying and, and he sees and hears the Lord telling him to get out of Jerusalem because they're not going to accept your testimony about me. And, and now here we've come full circle. He's back, back in Jerusalem and they're not accepting his testimony about Jesus. And you're going to see in a second that, that as soon as he begins to even think about testifying to Jesus in this story, then they're going to turn on him, particularly when he says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And now we're done. We're done listening, Paul. So he says, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned those who believed in you. They know who I am. They know at my core what it is that I believe. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So that was his rebuttal to God saying, get out of here. They're not going to accept your testimony. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And so now he has come back to Jerusalem after having gone on the mission that God sent him on. And then, and then what it says, what Luke tells us is up to this word, they listened to him. So until he got to that, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Everything was okay. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Well, after hearing his testimony, can you tell me why he shouldn't be allowed to live? simply because he was sent to the Gentiles? It tells you something about the Jewish-Gentile relationships that, that they decided at that point he shouldn't be allowed to live because God sent him to the Gentiles to give witness to Jesus. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. I'm sorry, so we're going to take the accused man in and we're going to flog him to say, confess why they hate you. Seems a little odd, just kind of a backward way of getting at something. He's not been charged with a crime. The, the tribune is just simply confused what all the hubbub is about. And he says, well, let's flog him and we'll figure it out from there. You're going to get him to confess why they hate him? But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Oh, by the way, <laughs> is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? In other words, I'm a Roman citizen, and I have a right to a trial, and I haven't had a trial. So is it okay if you go ahead and flog me? Before you pull that whip out, maybe you ought to give that a little thought. Here's a fact you didn't know. And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what, you're about, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. There's never been a time when I wasn't a Roman citizen. I have had these rights all my life. And natural-born citizens actually were considered a higher order of citizen in the Roman Empire, and Paul had Roman citizenship by birth, and the tribune just about made an enormous mistake because Paul would have redress for that, and it would not have gone well for the tribune for making that decision against Paul. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. He had already transgressed against Paul's civil rights that he was owed as a citizen of Rome. 
So everybody now, they've already committed what would essentially be something Paul had redress in civil court for by binding him at all. And they just about compounded that by flogging him. And so now they got to figure out what to do. We got to get him to the right person, the right people who can then conduct the trial of this man. So Paul, however, never along the way in any of these situations does does he allow this to to become hatred. Never does he allow that to happen. He, he certainly becomes angry. He certainly uh, doesn't have anything to do with these people, but he is constantly trying to preach the gospel to them. No matter how much they hate him, no matter how many times they've whipped him and beaten him and all the other stuff that they did to him and made his life a misery, it didn't matter to Paul because he continued to preach the gospel and continued to do what Jesus would do, which is to love these people enough to tell them the truth and to witness to them the power of God and the love of God and the truth of God in order that they might be saved. It's as simple as that. He's, he's not trying to tell them something that, that, is con, that is going to condemn them. He's trying to convict them of sin and then trying to, to convict them of the righteousness of Jesus in order that they might be saved and have what Paul has. And that's the way we need to continue to be able to be in our lives. We need to continue to, to rely on the love of God and allow his character to become our character so that we wouldn't consider people enemies, that we would just consider them unconverted people who were under demonic influence that kept them from being able to see the truth, and we would have compassion on them in the same way the Lord has compassion on them, and the Incarnation tells us everything we need to know about the depth of his love and the depth of his compassion for sinners like us.